We live in a world where it's offensive to preach the gospel of Jesus and to talk about his name. And I'm here to talk about it. Welcome to the Jesus is Offensive podcast. Yo, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Jesus Offensive podcast. I am your host, Taylor Wade Werfelman, as always. Welcome back. Uh, it's literally been two days since I talked to you guys last, um, or three. Um, but uh, yeah, glad to be back. Crazy that this is our third episode in a week. And uh, welcome to season five of the Jesus is Offensive podcast. Wild when we get to season five, we'll, we will have been uh, to 50 episodes. So that is absolutely insane. Um, yeah. Well, the reason I'm doing uh, a podcast on today, obviously, um, today is Christmas. At least Americans mainly are celebrating Christmas today. And uh, I felt, although I have some uh, interesting views on Christmas myself, I felt that it would be a good time to do a um uh, a nice little preaching on just the story of Jesus. You know, when I was in prayer before uh, season five, I really asked God, you know, what are some of the topics I should talk about? And I felt that he had brought up uh, speaking on his birth. And so um, I thought that that was very important. So I've titled this episode, The Miracle of Jesus, because again, I haven't really preached on this before, um, but it's an incredible story, uh, one that needs to be told. And although I think we, you know, as a society, we act as if we, know the story and we're pros at it, but I hope that today I can bring in some new aspects that maybe you haven't thought of before and uh, shed some new light on an incredible story. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously it's the reason why most of us, um, today are celebrating. Um, but before we get into anything, obviously let's pray. Um, dear Lord God, um, thank you so much Lord for this podcast. And, uh, I, I ask God that, Today's message, Lord, that there would be a beautiful weight to it, Lord, that this is a message talking about when you decided to come to earth, Lord, to save us from our sins, God, that although this was the inception of that mission, God, that <clears throat> you had to choose to be made flesh, Lord, to dwell among us, God. Um, I don't know why you would want to do that, Lord, but um, it is a display of your incredible love. And I ask God that as I preach on it today, Lord, that that um, would be shown through the words that I speak, Lord, that your love for us is so great and is so high and is so mighty. And that is why, exactly why, precisely why you came, um, set us free, Lord God. So um, let us not take this lightly, Lord. And I just pray that everything I say, God, would be from your spirit. God, if there's anything that is not of you, Lord, that you would wipe it from the ears of the listeners. God, and that um, in all things, Lord, that you would just be glorified uh, in this podcast today. So we just pray all this in your mighty, holy name. Amen. And I meant to say in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs> um, sweet. Well, we're going to start where most great nativity stories start in the Old Testament. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of you weren't expecting that, um, but we're going to be actually uh, starting in Daniel 9. Now, this is a complicated passage um, that many people have preached on for many years, but I feel that we have to start uh, at some place in the Old Testament because the Old Testament, if you are not familiar, um, was basically God's book that, I mean, God's words that he spoke to the Israel, uh, 
Israelite people uh, over the years of the things that they went through and and um, just them as a people group. Um, but throughout the Old Testament, there is a ancient belief amongst Jews that um, a Messiah would come. Now, we don't say uh, G- uh, that Jesus would come as Jews because uh, Jesus is who Christians, we believe, uh, is the Messiah. But they just believe that there was a person um, that was going to be the Messiah that was going to basically um, save the Jews from <clears throat> the evil that had come against them that would uplift Israel and make them the greatest nation on the earth and would defeat all of Israel's uh, enemies. Um, And so it's very important to start at some of these prophecies concerning uh, when the Messiah would come, because for many years, you know, the Jews were conquered by the Assyrians and then they were taken to Babylon and, and, you know, they had Egypt before all of that. And they're like, where is our Messiah? When will God come and uh, rescue us and totally take out all of the people that, that commit evil against us? So in Daniel 9, it answers that question. And, and again, um, for anyone who's Jewish, Messianic Jew, uh, Jew, or happens to actually be one that's not a Christian, um, Daniel 9 is by far the strongest um, prophecy, although there are many uh, that suggest Jesus's birth, um, the Messiah's birth, I should say, and that the Messiah would be born uh, at the certain at the certain time that we believe as Christians, Jesus was born. So I think it's very cool, very sick to check out um, as Christians to see that, wow, God's purpose is behind all this. And that's why I title this uh, episode, uh, The Miracle of Jesus, because all of the things that took place for Jesus to come to earth and subsequently to die on the cross, uh, save us from our sins, um, all of it was prophesied and, and, and purposefully planned over thousands of years before Jesus would even come. So the fact that Jesus would fulfill all of these predictions, you can say, or prophecies, um, makes him in himself God because there were so many over hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years that no man could have fulfilled them unless it truly was the son of God. So let's look at this. So Daniel seven, uh, Daniel nine, we're going to start at verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sins and the sins of my people. Now, remember, Daniel was a prophet, so I should have mentioned this before. And the Israelite people, um, every forty, every seven, uh, every seventh year, they needed to let the land rest because um, that was God's. Uh, command to them. So they weren't to work the land every seventh year. It was like a Sabbath day uh, for a year, kind of like the week Sabbath where the first six days, there's no Sabbath and on the seventh day you rest. Uh, It was the first six years you work the land, seventh day you let the land rest. Um, And this also wasn't just a um, rule. It was so that God uh, it was so that the people would protect the land and that the land would be fruitful for many, many years to come. So God had told the Israelites to do this and they disobeyed God. Um, for many, 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 many years. I believe it was 490 years. And because of that, God decides to exile them to Babylon. Well, guess how many years he exiles them? 70. Why? Because 40, 490 divided by seven comes out to 70. So he had to make up for those 70 years where they did not let the land rest. Uh, one out of seven years of the of those 490 years, which again, adds up to be 70. So One, I just point that out because it's so unique that God does these things. He doesn't just send them to Babylon and be like, I'm mad at you, but also he does it to let the land heal because the land had been overworked. So anyways, this is where we are. Um, We're in about 500 BC before Christ and Daniel is in Babylon. He was a Jew and the, the 
Israel itself, as we knew, as we know it now, had been destroyed, had been uh, conquest, and all the people had been taken to Babylon as like exiles, as refugees, and uh, were made to basically go into Babylonian uh, culture and lose their Jewish culture. So anyways, I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that before. So Daniel chapter nine, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord, my God, for this holy hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in a swift flight. Now remember, Gabriel, the the angel Gabriel, about the time of, of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you. For you... Uh, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So this is wild. Daniel is seeing basically 2,500 years, uh, potentially more because this is talking about the Antichrist. He has not yet come but at least 2,500 years in the future, um, which is absurd. And really, you don't see that much in scripture, uh, only in a few spots that someone saw that far ahead. Um, But we're not going to talk about the Antichrist today. What we want to talk about is verse 24. So what are the 77s uh, decreed for your people? So it's to finish transgression, right? So they were uh, obviously being punished for their sin, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. Now we know the only way to atone for wickedness was by blood to be shed. And like the New Testament says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, like they used to sacrifice animals, uh, that was actually not enough to take away sin. Only a perfect lamb, a, a lamb that had no sin, no blemishes, um, could atone for wickedness. So he says in these 77s, we're going to atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So it seems that these 77s, which we're not sure what they uh, are at this current moment, but they represent the timeline from, uh, where does it say right here? He says, no one understand this. Verse 25, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens. So we know that the first seven, the the seven sevens are going to be from the time the word goes out to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, the Messiah that they were looking for. So again, for all the Jews that are confused and they think the Messiah still has not come, this from their Jewish brother, who they consider to be a prophet, Daniel, who they have in their in their uh, um, uh, Old Testament, their version of the Old Testament, he's saying right here that this this is the timeline. There will be seven sevens from the time that they rebuild the temple, and and by the time the Messiah comes. Now, keep in mind this: 
the temple had not yet been restored. They were living in Babylon. The, the Israelites did not have a temple or anything to worship. But he's seeing this ahead of time and saying there will be a temple. And from the time um, the word goes out to restore the temple, meaning like they, they say, okay, let's, let's rebuild the temple. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, okay? So this is very important. And this is giving us the exact timeline. That's why I want to bring it up. So let's just break this down. So for one, 77s, it's a weird way of putting it. And many people have said, oh, does this mean 70 weeks or or what? Because they, they think that seven means weeks. But we know now looking at history that the sevens represent weeks of years. So meaning seven represents seven years. And for some reason, God has put them into these um, uh, these little categories. So instead of just saying, uh, 70 times seven, which is 490 years. He's breaking them into seven year periods, 70, seven year periods. I could, that's the easiest I can make it. And I'll say that one more time, 70, seven year periods. So seven times 70, 490 years until all of these things take place. Now, um, the first seven years, uh, seven, I'm sorry, the first seven uh, weeks of years. So seven times seven, that would be 49 years. And this is when Jerusalem was built. If you actually, um, the scholars that have looked into this, when they date it, they actually looked that, um, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So he makes a breakdown here. So those seven sevens, seven seven year periods, which is altogether 49 years was exactly to the date when they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, which was 400 BC at the end of the old Testament. Now, as you guys know, God goes silent there for 400 years until Jesus comes. So it says there will be seven sevens, which was the time between the Jews finishing their time in exile in Babylon and the temple, the new temple, the second temple in Jerusalem being rebuilt, the temple that existed when Jesus came to earth, which was the second temple. This is what they're talking about. And 62 sevens. So 62 groups of seven years, which is 434 years, um, must be completed before the Messiah. Now, the crazy thing is, is <coughs> if you put those two numbers together, because it says the seven sevens and the 62 sevens. So that's 69 sevens out of the 70 that he's talking about. So 69 times seven, 483 years. So again, scholars have looked into this and from the command to rebuild the temple to the baptism of Jesus, it is exactly 483 years. This is insane. Now, of course, there's some dating issues and okay, did they go by 360 um, day years or 365 day? Um, But it's funny because the scholars, if they look at it, 365 day years or 360 years and when the decree went out, because there's two separate um, instances that people think the decree went out for the new uh, uh, temple to be rebuilt in about 400 BC, no matter what you do, it leads you back to Jesus 483 years after that command. So I love this passage because yeah, you gotta, you gotta jump through some of these hula hoops, but basically what it's saying is this is, this is the timeline until the Messiah comes. And what does it say? After the 62 sevens, the anointed, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Who is that? The people of the ruler will come and will destroy the city and sanctuary. So after Jesus dies, the temple that, that he prophesies about here, right here, 
is destroyed in 70 AD. So that's what he's saying. The, temp- the sanctuary will, uh, will disappear. And it basically is saying now that when Jesus died, this is when the end will come. Wars will continue to the end. Desolations will be decreed. And then it starts talking about the Antichrist. So the the thing that scholars get really messed up here is, okay, we're, we've completed those 69 uh, sevens, meaning 69 groups of seven years, which is 483 years. But what about those last seven years, that last group of seven years? And we believe that this is the tribulation period in the end times. And we're not going to get into that. But there is a gap, uh, even in the prophecy, between those 69 groups of sevens and that last group of seven. But the reason I go to this passage, not to get confused with the other stuff, is just to say that the Jews had the exact time when Jesus would come. To the date. And I, I bring this up because it just shows how cool God is, that God did everything right to the letter, right as he had planned it. He had already foretold all of these things before time that this is exactly when the Messiah would come. And what would he do? Verse 24, um, he will finish transgression. He will put an end to sin. Well, who, who do we know did that? Jesus did that. To atone for wickedness. How did he do that? He died, right? Like it says in verse 26, he was cut off. He had nothing. to, And he, bring, and he brought in everlasting righteousness. And we're going to see in that seventh, uh, in the last uh, seven, the last part of verse 24 will be fulfilled, which is to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. We're going to talk about that at the very end. But again, I, I just put that because... It's so beautiful that God's clock is so in tune, in touch with us. And he He didn't just send Jesus. He made it super clear 500 years before that Jesus, the, the Messiah that we were all looking for, would appear right at this time. And that's exactly when Jesus appears. So this is huge. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that the reason a lot of Jews didn't accept him is because they thought he was going to be this military leader, that he was going to kill the Romans. But what does Daniel say here? It doesn't say any of that. He says he came to put an end to sin and atone for wickedness. So before God can come in and destroy all the evil, he has to atone for sin. Because if he was just going to come to destroy the evil, he would come to destroy all of us. Okay, so again, I know this isn't your normal uh, nativity message, but it's so incredible to see that 500 years before Jesus came, there was prophecy about him. No man can fulfill that type of prophecy to the letter. And they found Daniel uh, uh, copies of the scriptures of Daniel that are dated before the birth of Jesus. So we know that no one could have made these things up. This is divine inspiration by God. It's in, in, insane. So now we go back to the nativity and everyone knows the story, but you know what? It's Christmas for a lot of you. I figured I'm going to read through the passage of Luke that talks about Jesus's birth. Um, And I'm hoping that this is just a good time for you. Maybe your family is listening in right now. Uh, This is a great family podcast to just um, talk about the miracle that is Jesus, that God planned this all the way from the beginning, all the way from Babylon, when the Jews had no hope, when they thought, are we ever going to get Israel back? Are we ever going to get our land back? Are we ever going to be restored as a people? And then they send Jesus. So Luke 1, 5, uh, we're going to go through to, through to 38. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. 
Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. So who does God pick? He picks righteous people, people that observe all of God's commands and decrees blamelessly. Verse eight, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children's and uh, uh, to their children and disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, Zechariah, his he's chilling in the um, the temple, and a um, angel appears to them and he obviously he's afraid. So this wasn't like a natural thing, a normal thing that happened all the time. He's afraid. But this angel says, basically, you're going to have a son, even though your wife is barren, I'm going to allow her to have a son and his name, you're going to name him John. He is going to bring much joy. He's going to bring the people back to God. So verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. Remember, this is the same angel that appeared to Daniel. He sees the full picture. It's so cool. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you the good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So basically the angel's like, you didn't listen, you didn't believe, so I'm going to make you silent until this thing happens. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So very beautiful thing here, right? His wife conceives uh, a child and um, she is very thankful for that. And obviously, Zechariah, he still cannot speak. The angel silenced him and he is not able to speak now. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, uh, God sent the angel Gabriel. Gabriel is all over the place. To Nazareth, a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name, now remember you guys, um, God had promised uh, the house of Israel that the line of David would always produce the kings. Okay, we talked about this in last episode, but very important that he told them that no matter what, he told David that he would honor David because David was such a great king that all of the kings coming after him would be blood related to David, would come from his line, would be a descendant of him. So she, Mary was pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Okay, so they were in the kingly line. Um, although at this time, uh, they were under Roman uh, captivity, basically. Um, the Romans had basically come in and 
uh, taking control of Israel. They had allowed the Jews to live and do the things they want to do, but basically they were occupied by Rome. So they didn't really have a king. Uh, Rome had sent up a, set up a fake king who is this Herod fella, but he wasn't from the line of David. I don't think he was actually a Jew either. Uh, don't quote me on that, but um, but anyways, if things were as they should have been where Rome was not invaded, Rome had not invaded Israel, then, uh, the line of David would have continued to be the king. So, uh, Joseph was in the kingly line. <clears throat> so here we go. Um, verse 28, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly f- favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Wow. So this is an incredible stuff here because one, okay, the, the angel goes to Zechariah. Okay. Zechariah is a priest and, and says, Hey, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah doubts the angel does not believe. And the angel silences him. Now the angel comes to Mary and says, Hey, you're highly favored as well. You're righteous. You're, you're seen well in the eyes of the Lord. Now keep in mind that scholars think that Mary was around 13 to 15 years old. This is a very, very young person. And Mary has more faith than Zechariah, the priest. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your words be fulfilled. Crazy the amount of faith that Mary has to have. Now, I think in, in Christian circles nowadays, we make we make Mary very little because the Catholics make Mary way too much. Um, but it's very important to acknowledge, uh, just as we acknowledge all the other Bible characters, how incredible uh, a person Mary was because of what God had done in her. And this is why God chooses her, right? Because she is highly favored. Um, not because she's some perfect person, as maybe the Catholics would suggest, but because she displayed great faith that even when the angel told her, you are going to have the son of God, you are a virgin, you are going to conceive a child without having sex, and also it is going to be the Son of God who's going to save our people from their sins, um, and that God will give him the throne of his father, David. I mean, this is a lot to take in, even just a lot to understand for someone this young. And they said, I'm the, she, Mary said, I'm the Lord's servant. May your words be fulfilled. See, Mary was this incredible um, person. And, and her story really does need to be told um, because she had this incredible faith. Um, and something else people don't know is that on the day of Pentecost, she was there with with the um, with the people in the upper room. She was one of those that spoke in tongues. Yes, Mary spoke in tongues. But the important part is with Mary is just a side little tid- tidbit is that after speaking in tongues, after uh, Acts uh, 1 and 2, she disappears. She becomes part of the fellowship. She is not someone that we are to worship because of her faith, but she is someone to look back on and say, wow, God, you did a mighty work in her. And and uh, like all of us, we want to have the faith that Mary had. Um, 
And remember this too, that even Jesus did not call her mother. Um, I mean, he did initially, but later he calls her woman. Um, Jesus even separated himself from her, not because he didn't love her, but because to show that Jesus was divine, not Mary, not any other person. In fact, Jesus hands over his mother to John on the cross and says, John, take care of my mother, right? So let's keep Let's keep it clear. We do, we're not here to worship Mary, but Mary is an incredible character uh, who as Christians, we really don't talk about, but look at the faith she had. Um, and I, f- I find it very interesting too, that um, the angel uses uh, Elizabeth her, and her story to strengthen Mary's faith, strengthen Mary's faith in saying that, Hey, even Elizabeth, your relative who, you know, couldn't have a child because of her age. Yeah. She's going to have a child. Um, and so Mary is more apt to believe. Um, but again, take in account the weight of what the angel is saying. Hey, you're going to have the son of God. You're a virgin, but you're still going to have a child. And he's going to be the, the, like the savior of the world. And she's like, okay, yeah, I'm the Lord's servant. You know, may your words be fulfilled. Crazy stuff. All right, let's keep going. Verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? As soon as the sound of your greetings reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So even Elizabeth, the baby in her womb, uh, leaps for joy when when Mary comes and they know that Mary is holding the son of God. This is just incredible, incredible stuff going on right here. And Mary sings a little song here. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, right? So she didn't say, oh yeah, just calm down. I don't know if it's really true. I don't know if I'm gonna really have the son of God. I don't, you know, and this is what we do so often as Christians. We doubt God, right? We have we have this time that God reveals himself. He tells us something and we say, okay, we want a second, third, fourth, fifth sign. Mary got one sign, quick little visit from an angel. But she doesn't doubt it. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So she's saying that, listen, by by um, her having the son of God, this is God being merciful. He's remembered his servant Israel. He's remembered to be merciful. He's remembered Abraham and his descendants This is huge for the Jewish people because they had been looking for this Messiah for over 2,000 years. They had been taught as kids. This was something they understood. There were many prophecies about him. And now Mary, this 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, is chosen to have the Son of God. Most of us are older and we couldn't even bear. We wouldn't even believe God if he came down and told us something like that. So Mary stayed there with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Oh man, so good. Um, verse 57, 
When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Okay, so again, John the Baptist, the reason I'm including this part of the story is very important. He was born six months before Jesus. Now, Jesus is his cousin, um, at least the human aspect of Jesus is, um, but um John the Baptist was prophesied about, just as I read uh, the prophecy in Daniel about Jesus, that a man would come um, preparing the way for Jesus. And what is John the Baptist, his whole ministry when he uh, comes in to age? He starts saying, prepare yourself for the Son of God is coming, right? I want you to repent, meaning I want you to turn away from your sin. Uh, and he was baptizing people in the Jordan. Why? To get them prepared for the Messiah, who is the righteous, holy Lamb of God, um, who he was coming. So, um, Zachar, I mean, um, John the Baptist and Jesus have this very tight relationship. Who knows if they had a tight relationship in in real life, but in terms of their prophetic um, meanings, they had an incredible uh, woven story. And I love that even Mary and Elizabeth are close in this. So anyways, um, this is the ninth month of the, uh, the pregnancy, right? They have John. And remember, Mary is about now at uh, three months of her pregnancy. So uh, six months different there. So, But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Uh, verse 61, they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue set free. Remember, he couldn't still talk. It's been like almost a year and Zachariah has not been able to talk. But when he says his name is John, it showed that he believed and he honored what God had told him. And immediately his mouth was open, verse 64, and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about about it, asking, when then is this child, Who? what then is this child going to be? They knew that this child must be someone special because Zachariah hasn't been able to talk. They named him this crazy name uh, that none of them had been named after because normally you named your child after your ancestor. And um, remember, Elizabeth was barren. She could not have a child. So what, who, what, is, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. So now Zachariah sings a little song here. His father, Zachariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. So he knew uh, from the beginning that John and Jesus were going to be extremely important uh, to the redemption of Israel. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now he's talking about Jesus here. He's not talking about John, his son. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So you see, they knew the Messiah from the prophets long ago, but they thought he was bringing salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So they thought he was literally going to be a physical, king who was going to wipe out all of all of Israel's foes and reign. And they're like, yes, we're going to be saved from the Romans to show mercy to our ancestors, verse 72, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, now he's talking to John, will be called a prophet of the most high. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So through the forgiveness of their sins, why? Because 
John the Baptist was baptizing people, what? For the forgiveness of their sins. And he was getting them washed clean so that they could meet the most holy who was the Messiah. So he was to prepare the way for the Lord, Verse like verse 76 says. So verse 78, because the... Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come up, come to us from the heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. And this was to fulfill um, prophecies that basically had said that John would live in the wilderness um, he would wear, I think it was camels and goat skins and, and he would eat locusts and honey. And these are all things that John actually did in the spirit of Elijah. Um, so yeah, very interesting, but I want to backtrack here. <coughs> so incredible. We cannot tell the story without miracles. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, one John is born to this barren woman, right? And Mary is a virgin, right? Until Jesus is born. I'm going to read in a little bit here. The next passage, we're going to go to Matthew, which was um, Joseph's whole understanding of everything that's going on with his wife, Mary here. But um, it tells us, and I'll give a little spoiler here, is that um, they did not uh, know each other, as the Bible says, or have sex before Jesus was born. So Mary was a virgin through and through until Jesus, the day he was born, which I hadn't noticed that before. And I thought that was a very cool detail, um, just so all the naysayers couldn't say anything. Like he was total, she was totally a virgin. Now, um, I want to discuss a few things because this has been tough for the modern world world to take in and, and I'll, I'll kind of share what I believe, but this is, this is the incredible miracle. Like why did God use a virgin? You know, it's kind of a weird thing, you know, and now we talk about it, but, um, it's important to know that there have been a few cases of potential virgin birth where the egg is stimulated and divides, um, uh, but all of the children have always been female. Now, again, these are people that claim there was a virgin birth, but even so, um, if, if it is true, all of those examples have been female birth. So female gives birth to female virgin gives birth to female. Um, it's never been male because female can only produce female. Every egg is female, uh, unless the male comes in to change the egg, right? And I'm no um, scientist. I don't know all the details, but uh, I do find this stuff to be very interesting. So for one, um, Jesus was fully Mary's son because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be of the line of David, right? So there's, there's a few ways that people take this. One, that Jesus was either, you know, obviously he was fully God and fully male. Okay. But some people lean towards more that he was more God. Some people lean that he was more male, meaning that some people believe that, you know, God placed Jesus in Mary's womb, that Mary had nothing to do with it. She was basically just a carrier of, of Jesus, but that wouldn't really make Mary God's son. Uh, and it wouldn't also explain where, uh, Jesus got his physical appearance from. So, to me, I, to me, I marked that one off. I think that Mary had more to do with the pregnancy than just carrying, um, the child because that would have just made her like, a uh, a caretaker, you know what I mean? Um, and so then the other side of things is that, um, you know, that, that, that Jesus was, uh, fully human and, and, uh, no interference from God. Uh, and obviously I find that to be wrong too, but I think there's a, a spot in the middle. And again, I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. Um, but like I said, Jesus had to be fully Mary's son. Why? Because all of the Kings came from the line of David. Now, if, if Mary was just carrying Jesus, he wouldn't really be from the line of David because Mary wouldn't truly be his mother. 
So therefore, Jesus wouldn't even be a son of Abraham. He wouldn't even be a Jew. So God didn't just place the fertilized egg in Mary uh, and create it out of nothing, okay? So now, like I said, on the other hand, some people think that God changed one of the X chromosomes to a Y to produce a boy. So that that's all that happened. He just changed one of the chromosomes so that Mary could produce um, a boy. Um, kind of like how I was saying that some people had claimed a virgin birth, but it had only produced females. Um, but the problem is with that too is that Jesus would be too much like Mary, less divine, right? He'd basically be an identical twin of Mary in, in human form. So what I believe to be true and what I think makes the most sense and what is the biggest miracle of mankind is that God created within her womb a male sperm with all the DNA of the son of God that fertilized Mary's egg and it created Jesus making him equally son of Mary and equally son of God human mother divine father being 100% both and I know this is kind of a weird thought when we think okay God you know create like um putting male sperm all the DNA of his son into Mary it's a little you know odd for um our minds but uh, I think it's actually quite incredible when you realize that Jesus was truly a human he was truly formed like we all were except um there was no sexual act or anything like that but still God had every part of his father remember he said if you've seen me you've seen the father so he was directly from his father and yet he was truly son of mary because he had to be from the line of david he had to be a son of abraham so um there's a very interesting video out here and i even hesitate to share it because i think some people are going to roll their eyes at it but i'm going to share it because i believe that it is the miracle that is a part of this story and whether or not you believe the actual story i believe it in theory as well um there's a man out there named Ron Wyatt. You can look up Ron Wyatt, which would be R-O-N-W-Y-A-T-T. I really, really um, beg you to check him out on YouTube. I cry every time I watch this video that I'm about to recommend. Um, look up um, uh, the Ark Discovery or the Ark Files or the Ark of the Covenant. It's about a 40-minute video where he claims to have discovered the Ark of the Covenant. Now, again, that brings in a lot of different discussion stuff just watch the video and see if it resonates with your spirit but the one crazy thing that he finds which i think is one of the most incredible incredible discoveries ever is that where he claims the ark of the covenant is is would be under where jesus was crucified and if you remember correctly i know i'm going to get into some deep history here so um try to track with me if not go watch the video um and even if you listen to me right now we'll go watch the video um it's super good but uh, and this guy was a no one, no one believes him. So, um, and I believe he was a man of God. So why would he lie about something like this? He also discovered a lot of many other things, um, that were true. Um, but there's just too much in this story that I can't detail here, but that makes me believe it's real. And I'm not one to just believe dumb things, but, um, basically where he found this Ark of the Covenant was under, Golgotha, um, not the one that Israel claims to be Golgotha, but the one that actually looks like a skull that, that some people believe that's actually where Jesus was crucified. And what he found is absolutely incredible. It actually, when he was looking, it made him faint when he was down there, but he found these stalactites going down, um, 
you know, 30, 40 feet under where the cross mount would have been. He found mounts for a cross uh, in this Golgotha. You know, you got to understand in Israel, what they do is every hundreds of years, they build cities on top of cities. So you just start digging and you find all the old ruins. It's all built on itself. So he's about 30, 40 feet down and he finds this Ark of the Covenant chamber um, with all of the other pieces that were in in the uh, temple. And what he finds is these large stalactites um, going down and he, he pulled one off, you know, he's like, okay, I'll go see what this is. Um, but what he finds on the Ark of the Covenant is blood. And now remember when the Holy of Holies, um, blood had to be shed um, to atone for sins of the people. And this is a covenant that God would never break. He says he'd never break his covenant. So when Jesus died on the cross, Yes, it was a beautiful symbolic story, but also that blood most literally had to pay for our sins on the holy of holy, just like um, how they had paid for our sins in the past through sacrifice. I hope you're tracking with me here. But so he finds this blood and it literally makes him faint because he starts to realize that this blood had dripped down from the cross mount all the way on to the Ark of the Covenant, which is incredible. But after hearing the story, even if it's not true that he found it, which I believe it is, but in theory, it makes total sense. So he actually goes in Israel and he takes some of this like crystallized blood and he takes it to a blood tester. He says, Hey, can you run this blood for me? And they're like, um, they're like, this blood's dead. He's like, can you just run it? You know, please just run it. And, um, so they run it and he comes back, they call him, Hey, can you come over here? So he comes back a day later and, uh, it's all these Jewish guys because they were in Israel working on it. And, uh, they're, they're all being squirmish, like talking to each other, talking, speaking in my own minute in Hebrew. And, and, uh, they come up to him and they say, where did you get this? He's like, what do you mean? He, they're like, this blood is alive. He's like, what? And, uh, they explained to him though, that the blood only had, now I'm going to butcher this part because I don't know science, but basically it had, um, <clears throat> it had 23 X chromosomes and had one Y chromosome. And obviously he starts crying um, and he tells these Jewish guys that this is the blood of your Messiah. This is God's blood. And man, you just start crying when you watch the video. So I really encourage you. I already, I blew, I spoiled it now. But the reason I bring this up is again, if this is true or not, but this is what I believe to be the blood of Christ is that it had everything of the woman. And then it also had the why, which was God the DNA, everything from God's side, that was his side of the blood. And this is what formed Jesus, the son of God, also the son of a human. And man, when I heard that, it was like, whoa, that just made it all real. Like that's impossible. There's no such thing as blood um, that just has, you know, 23 X and one Y. Normally, I think it has uh, the same amount on the male side, uh, except one of them is Y, which changes the gender. Don't quote me on all that. Um, But anyways, this is the miracle of Jesus, that God literally used Mary to create the human features of his own son, who Mary gave birth to. So Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Now, remember, the Bible says God is spirit. So spirit took on flesh. Well, you need a man to do that. So he chose Mary. Okay, so hopefully I didn't confuse you guys with all that. But anyways, go watch that video, um, The Ark Discovery. Um, 
or, or put in the Ark of the Covenant under Ron Wyatt and just watch it for yourself and see how it touches your spirit. To me, it has to bear witness to my spirit if it's true or not. <clears throat> Incredible though, just to think about all that stuff. Just when you think about the science behind Jesus, it makes Jesus so much more real that this person was a one of one. He was truly God and he was truly man. So what is Joseph's uh, whole thoughts on all this? Okay, we go over to Matthew 1, uh, verse 18 18 through 24. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So this is Matthew's telling of it, and he leaves some of the stuff out. That's why I went to Luke to talk more. Luke goes a little bit more in depth with uh, Mary. Um, His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, so the reason being is if you were found pregnant before you were married to your husband, then you were a whore, right? You had, you had, um, prostituted yourself or whatever, and they would stone you for, for something like that. And so Joseph, he's a really great guy. He's like, he wanted to be faithful to the law, but he's like, you know, I'll just divorce her quietly. I won't make a public spectacle of it. I don't want her to get hurt. You know, what a great dude. And and again, another person we don't talk about enough, Joseph. Um, There's nothing bad talked about of Joseph in the Bible, which is a pretty crazy uh, feat. So verse 20, but after he had considered this, uh, divorcing her quietly, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Quote, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. So this has already been prophesied that a virgin would give birth and that he would give, uh, give them a son named Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, verse 24, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage, right? So have sex or whatnot uh, until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So this is beautiful. So Joseph, although he's like, okay, I'm just going to divorce her quietly. I don't want to shame her, um, but I want a pure wife. Uh, God comes to him in, in a dream, tells him shortly, hey, what she has in her is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, she's going to give birth to a son. You're going to name him Jesus. He will save his people from his sin. This, again, this is a huge claim. How many of us have gotten dreams and not listened to our dreams? I, I know I'm I'm one to to speak. I mean, I've I've said, God, okay, you got to confirm that. You got to confirm that. This guy hears this once and says, okay, and he decides to take Mary as his as his wife and believe what the Lord had said. I mean, this is great, great faith. And we're talking two people that did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because they were in the old covenant. I mean, this is beautiful. This is the story of Jesus. Two people that God chose who had extreme faith to carry um, this precious cargo uh, that is Jesus. So let's go back to Luke. We'll go to chapter two. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while uh, Cornelius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee and Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to, so basically everyone has to go home to be counted, right? And because he had come from the line of David, well, if you guys don't know, David um, was from Bethlehem. So Joseph has to go up to Bethlehem because that is where his line is from. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. 
While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So cool. <clears throat> so is this not prophetic, right? There was no room for Jesus. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day and it honestly started to make me cry. I was just thinking that, man, Jesus, he's up in heaven. And we're going to talk about this more, the divinity part, but he decides, he, he on his own decision comes to the earth to save his people from his sin. And yet there isn't even any room. He has to be born in a, in a manger. Now, to understand this, and this is just uh, what scholars uh, think, so again, take it with a grain of salt, but uh, it does make a lot of sense. Inns were a big square uh, with rooms. So the courtyard in the middle uh, was where the animals went, where the uh, where there were troughs. So um, it was there was no stable, it was no cave. He was born in this middle area where everyone had their own rooms, and this is where all the animals were. So you think about it, right? Hebrews talks about he lowered himself uh, below the angels, but now he's putting himself on the level of the animals. There was not even any room. And what a what a picture of Jesus' ministry that time and time again he was rejected, rejected, rejected by men because they, were, they did not have room in their hearts. They did not want to change. They did not truly want to be set free from their sin. Wow. <clears throat> Verse 8. And there were shepherds living in the out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. See, here's angels again. It's just angels, angels, angels. Every important part in the Bible you see in the gospel, uh, you know, the story of Jesus, angels, angels, angels appear. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So again, another instance, look at the um, faith of these shepherds. Right? I mean, of course they see an angel, but um, just incredible. And, and who does God appear to? He doesn't appear to the chief priests. He doesn't appear to the Pharisees. He doesn't appear to the Romans. He appears to the shepherds. He appears to the lowly, right? Born in a manger, appears to shepherds. What did Jesus say? I came for those who need a doctor, not, not for those who are well. He came for the lowly. He said, the meek shall inherit the earth. I mean, you think you take yourself back to Jesus' time. Who would you have been? Would you have been a Pharisee? Would you have been a shepherd? Would you have been one of those people in the inn that didn't have room? Now, what was Bethlehem? <clears throat> so Bethlehem was a uh, city, obviously, in Israel. And uh, like I said, David was from there. Um, but let's look at some of these old prophecies, okay? We're going to go to Micah 4, 8. Um, actually, I'll go to Micah uh, 4, 6 through 8. Um, In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief. 
I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from the day, from that day and forever. And this one's important. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. So he's saying that the king will come to Jerusalem. Where? From the watchtower of the flock, stronghold, the daughter of Zion. Now, what is the watchtower of the flock? Okay, we're going to get into that in one sec. But let's go down to Micah 5, 1 through 4, where he talks about this more. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against you. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, Ephrathath, Though you are small among the clans, okay, this was a very lowly, small, remember I said there were shepherds living out, um, you know, this was a small area. Uh, out of you, so though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of, of old, from ancient times. So origins, right? God had no beginnings. So that's what he's saying. This is, this is the Messiah. This isn't just another great prophet because his origins are from old or from ancient times. Verse three, therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So it's talking about shepherding the flock. It's talking about uh, a ruler coming out of Bethlehem, a ruler coming out of tower of the flock. Okay, what is that? Well, there was a tower of the flock in, in Bethlehem. And this is the very interesting part. You know, last year around this time, I was praying, God, I was just like, God, give me a fresh revelation, just new understanding of the Bible, things that I haven't heard before. I want to I want to have new knowledge. It's just exciting to see what you've done and what's in the book uh, that we read every day. And something he showed me was I started asking questions like, hmm, I wonder what they did with the sheep in Bethlehem. And man, I started doing some Googling and things just started coming alive. So just wait, this is going to be super cool. But so again, Bethlehem, home of David um, and God, Jesus was from the line of David. And what did God say? That all the kings would come from David's line. Okay. So they have to go up to Bethlehem because they're being counted. Now, what was the tower of the flock? It was a place called Migdal Eater. I think I'm saying that right. Um, this is where lambs set aside for temple sacrifices were raised. So remember, every year they had to give uh, sacrifices for the people. They had to sacrifice lambs. And that was a lot of lambs. There's a lot of people. There was a lot of sin. So they had to be raised somewhere. Uh, somewhere. Uh, they estimated that, that was about 250,000 sheep were needed a year. And funnily enough, and this is one of the revelations I found out, Bethlehem is was the hub of growing these sheep, raising these sheep, and making the sheep ready for sacrifice. So something to know about uh, shepherding as well, that shepherding was a hereditary duty, okay? So remember some of the great leaders of Israel before, Moses was a shepherd, David was a shepherd, and Jesus, right? He was coming to be a shepherd, born amongst the shepherd and the sheep, Um Shepherds were the poorest citizens. Remember, um, Samuel comes to choose uh, a king and he, and he goes to David's family and he's looking at all of David's brothers. He's like, hey, do you have another son? And he's like, oh yeah, but he's just out tending the sheep, right? He, they were the lowest. And Samuel says, that's the one. That's who I want to be king. Um, so God picks shepherds. Why? Because shepherds know how to guard the flock from lions, tigers, bears, all of these things. Um, and they have great leadership qualities. But they were bottom of the social ladder. They were seen as very lowly. So 
Now, shepherds in Bethlehem would watch their flocks on hills and in the tower of Migdal Eder. This was an actual tower. If you look up uh, on Google, you can see some pictures of what they think it looked like. Um, And this was what was responsible for gathering sheep for temple sacrifices. So, like I said, an estimated 250,000 sheep were needed a year. um, And every firstborn male was considered holy. So when they would raise these sheep, interesting enough, what was Jesus? He was the firstborn, it says that from Mary and he was a male. So every firstborn male of the sheep was considered holy and set aside for sacrifice. Now, what would they do with these sheep? This is what blew my mind. They would then wrap the sheep in swaddling cloth and lay him in a manger to keep them contained while examining them for blemishes to see if they were going to be a good sacrifice. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, come on. Is that not insane? God literally put together this story from the beginning of time. And this is why I love these revelations because the more details we understand of Jesus' birth, the more we see this cannot be a human story. This this is way too deep. This is way too multifaceted. There are so many levels of this. I didn't even know this being a Christian my whole life. Um, But what does it say here? This will be a sign to you. You will find a sign. You see how that makes more sense? No, they they understood that the Lamb of God was coming and this would be a sign to them. You'd find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And that's exactly what they did to these sheep. So the shepherds knew exactly what was going on and where to find the lamb. And I believe this is why God chose the shepherds because they understood um, the sacrifices and how all this worked. And of course, Bethlehem is the town where all the sacrifices came from. And who was the final greatest sacrifice for our sins? Who was the lamb, right? What what does John say, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus? They said, "There there is he, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the earth. So while all of these people are thinking, oh, the Messiah is coming to destroy the Romans, Jesus is like, no, I, I'm the lamb. I have to come first to be a lamb, to be sacrificed because of the sins of my people. Heavy stuff. And so cool that literally the symbolism of Jesus being a lamb, it goes far beyond just the name and the function of what Jesus would do. It literally has to go all the way down to his birth. Man, that's so cool. Thank you, Lord. How could anyone make this story up? It's the miracle of Jesus. So Luke 2, 16 through 21. So they hurried off the shepherds and found Mary and Joseph and the baby. Of course they found him because they knew exactly where to look, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So I want to pause here. The really important thing to see is when Jesus was circumcised, okay? I was looking for some art for the podcast the other day, and it's like every single Christian art is all white people dressed up as Christians, okay? And I I mean, as as Jesus and all these uh, biblical characters. And listen, there's no problem with wanting, you know, to, to be like that and to make art for God. But let's keep in mind that Jesus was a Jew through and through. He was Jewish. He was circumcised on the eighth day like every single Jew. And that Jesus was a man. 
You know, there are cathedrals and places that they believe that Jesus was a transgender or was non-binary or whatever this other junk. No, Jesus was a man. He was circumcised. He was named Jesus. So important. Jesus was truly man and God. This is the mystery. So we finish up Luke here with uh, Luke 2, 22 through 40. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written uh, in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. Now there was a man uh, in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. So Simeon, this person, God had said, hey, listen, you're going to see the Messiah before you die. And right when he sees Jesus, he knows this is the Messiah. And this is what Simeon says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So even Simeon knew that he would be a light for the Gentiles as well. That's pretty cool. But verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, I'm sure Mary and Joseph, right? They they think that Joseph was around age 17, Mary's 13 to 15. They're just amazed. I mean, they have this child, Jesus, right? And and I'm sure we were just talking about this the other night. Like it was, must have been a little confusing because it's like, you know, your mind when you think, oh, I'm having the son of God, you almost think it's like this. You don't even know what it's going to look like. You know what I mean? Like, really? Could the son of God be a human? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, will he cry? You know, will he do all these little things? And I'm sure at this whole time, they're just blown away. Like, so kind of like the disciples didn't see the full picture. Like they believed God, but you know, after this, they end up waiting for 30 years until Jesus to do his public ministry. So I'm sure there was still a lot of confusion, but in all of it, they were faithful. And you see where, what it says right here, you know, um, uh, the child's father and mother marveled at what was about what was said about him, right? They were marveling at this. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own, your own soul too. Meaning that Jesus was coming to convict people of sin to turn people to righteousness, to to make the land repent, and then to being a sacrifice for sin. So it's pretty cool that he prophesies all of this. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Wow. 
So you have these two witnesses, a male and a female, that when they go into the temple that says, listen, this is the son of God. He is going to save his people from his sins. Um, and and even Simeon is like, listen, I can die happy now. And I'm sure Mary you know, was and Joseph were both like blown away by all of this. So this is the story. This is the miracle of Jesus. Now, what does this mean? What does all this mean, right? We've heard this story a million times. And although we know it, it, there are still questions. It's hard to comprehend. And I think that's why I was trying to answer the question about how was a a God born into um, a human? And I think, you know, we tried to answer that as best we could uh, in understanding uh, the chromosomes and how all these things worked and why Jesus was truly related to Mary, but was also fully God's son. So the first question we ask is, when was Jesus really born? Because, spoiler alert, Jesus was not born um, on Christmas. Uh, he was not born today. He was not even born close. And, and some of the right away reasons why is because shepherds did not keep watch of their flock by night in the winter uh, on the hillside because that is not what they did at that time. Um, so we know uh, from that and a few other things that I'm going to break down. And I thought, you know, this would be interesting. And then we're going to go to John 1. So stick around because uh, I this is all coming to a head. Uh, the most incredible part of Jesus becoming human. And that is what he did uh, at his birth. But so John the Baptist's father went in to pray and God told him his wife would have a son. When she was six months pregnant, angel spoke to Mary, right? Six plus nine months, 15 months. So we know that it was about 15 months from when Zachariah was told that, you know, he would have a, um, a son. Now, the house of the priests, which Zachariah was a part of, uh, took about two weeks turns in the temple. And remember, it says that it was his turn because that's when the angel spoke to him. So his house of priests, and this is from scholars and what they come to, but um, they they happen to think that this was the third month of the house of the, uh, the priests. So if you add 15 months to that, you come to the seventh month of the next year for Jesus being born. Because, right, the third month plus uh, six months of uh, um, Elizabeth and then nine months of Mary because they overlap there for about three months. You get to about the seventh month of the year. Now to the Israel, the Jewish calendar, that is, uh, September and October, approximately somewhere in there. Um, and this actually kind of makes sense a lot because as well, because Bethlehem, right? Why were they so full? Of course there was a census, but they were also full because, um, they were five miles from Jerusalem and there was the festival going on. Um, and what festival was this? This was the festival of tabernacles. Now you've heard it said, you know, all the festivals have to be fulfilled. And the only one that hasn't been fulfilled is the trumpets, which is where we believe Jesus will come back. Now we believe that Jesus came during the feast of the tabernacles, which is, you know, from September to October in, in the middle of there. And why? Because Jesus came to tabernacle among us, right? He is uh, his name is Emmanuel. God is with us, right? God tore the veil in the temple courts when Jesus died. He said, the way to me is through Jesus. Jesus said, if you if you see me, you've seen the Father. The I, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So where the Israelites for years and years could not come to God face to face, they had to go through the Holy of Holies where one, I talked about this in last week's episode, but basically um, one person once a year would go into the Holy of Holies, which was designated as God's dwelling place in Israel to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. But now God gets rid of all that through Jesus and says, now you can come to me one-on-one, the lamb who takes away the sins of the earth. So 
And this is why Bethlehem would have been full because so many people were going to the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was in Jerusalem and Bethlehem was very close. It was like a, um, you know, a uh, hop, skip and a jump from there. So Jesus was not born on Christmas. It, it is very clear uh, in scripture for these reasons that I've given. Um, and we believe that he was born in September or October uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles at some point. So <clears throat> now it's important to ask in all this, you know, in these great stories, we know and we love, we hear them a million times. We watch the nativity story. What did Jesus really do? This is, this is more of a tougher, deeper question. Uh, not physically, what did he do, but what, what were the implications of this? And we go, no, we look no further than, uh, John, uh, one, one through 18. So, uh, this is John's gospel. Now, many people had, John wrote his gospel last. Many people had written gospels already. And some of them had, had started with Jesus' baptism. Some of them had started with Jesus' birth. Like Luke, Mark had started with baptism. And then, um, you know, Matthew, he starts with the genealogy of saying, you know, listen, uh, Jesus came from Abraham. Um, but John, who was the disciple that Jesus loved, who was in Jesus's inmost circle, he comes at it from a different angle. Now, John doesn't actually even talk about really um, Jesus being born on the earth, but he talks about it from the beginning because where does all things start, right? Adam and Eve. And, and, and John realizes that Jesus was there before everything. That it doesn't just start at his baptism. It doesn't start at his genealogy because that would dumb Jesus down to still being a man. But John realizes that Jesus is God and that God is forever. And this is one of my favorite passages. So hold tight. We're going to break down some of this stuff. Chapter one, uh, verse one. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe he himself was not the light he came only a witness to the light the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him i'll wow, take that in though the world was made through him the world did not recognize him he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, quote, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, 
who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Wow, powerful. So let's break this down. So in the beginning was the Word. He was with God. He was God. Now what is the Word? So little background, little history lesson here. So the Word translated to whole lagos. Um, you probably heard in your... Uh, um, English classes, you know, logos, uh, logic, right? Um, so in, in Ephesus, there was a Greek scientist, okay? He, he invented science. He taught his students to try to find the reason why. This is where science was born out of, the reason why. He called the reason why whole logos. So every branch of science is trying to find the reason why for something. Why? You know, why are things like this? And so the whole logos means the word, in Greek. So Jesus is the reason why. So when John's saying in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the reason why, the reason for everything. And the reason why was with God. The reason why was God. The reason why was with God in the beginning. He is the reason why, verse three, all things were made. He is the reason why we have life in him. He's the light of all mankind. God made it all for Jesus to inherit and we in Christ will also inherit it like it talks about here um, where, where it says, you know, we have the choice to become sons of God. Crazy. So the, the thing that's the most interesting about all this is that, so Jesus, it's making it clear that he was the word before he became flesh. He was the reason why. He was the reason for everything. He was not flesh in the beginning. Verse 14, the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. Now we just read that like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's when Jesus came. But that is divine mercy right there. Let me explain this to you. Like it says, God is spirit. Spirit does not die. Spirit does not have an ending. He was with God in the beginning. There is beginning. There is no beginnings, right? He was before the beginning. And that's what he's saying. He was with God in the beginning. Like he was already there when they decided to start all this. Jesus, as God, the word, the reason why, death was never in the cards for him. Do you realize that? God never has to die. God never has to experience human pain. God never has to be tempted like we are. But he chose to make his dwelling among us. He chose to become flesh. I mean, just take that in. There's this great story that my one of my favorite preachers uh, talks about. His name is David Pawson. So he had uh, his kids and uh, they were looking at this fish tank and the fish were always fighting. And David said to his kids, he's like, um, wouldn't it be great if you could just become a fish and go in there and fix all the problems? They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he's like, would you do it? And they're like, well, yeah. And then he's like, what if I told you that you had to be a fish for the rest of your life? And they were like, oh, well, no, no, of course. Do you realize that when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't just sign up for flesh for 33 years. He decided to put on flesh for the rest of his life. Jesus will always be a human. 
he put this nasty flesh, the struggles, the, the hunger. What, what is our flesh? It hungers. It lusts for things. I'm not just talking about sexually thing, sexual things. We have to pee. We have to poop. The, the flesh is always nagging. That's why our spirit lives on in the end. But Jesus will always be flesh. He chose to go down to our little fish tank. He was watching all of us bicker. He chose to become like us, to fix the issue, and then to stay like us for the rest of his life, even though death was never in the cards for him. He decided to come to earth knowing that he would die, knowing that he would suffer. He could have sat up there and said, no, they they can figure it out. I'm God. I I don't want to die. I don't want flesh. He chose all that. He became human for the rest of his life. And now, what are the implications of this? He is the first human to be above the angels and seated at the right hand of God. Why? So that we someday can also surpass the angels and be seated at the right hand of God as sons and daughters of the king. Why? Because Jesus is the pioneer of our faith. He did it before us. Jesus adopted our flesh, hungry, thirsty, tired. Male flesh, Jewish flesh, sexual flesh, right? It says that he was tempted in every way as humans, as we're tempted. The day that he was born that we all celebrate, do we realize that we're celebrating the day that he decided, I'm going to take on all the struggles that these humans face? so that I can save them from their sins. What does it say? He considered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but he made himself a little lower than the angels in coming. He lowered his divinity. You want to talk about humility? We praise ourselves thinking we're worthy of praise. When we're not, we have sinned, we have screwed up. This is someone that had never sinned, never screwed up, totally worthy of the praise, totally could have lorded it over us, could have been prideful. And yet he does not see equality to be God as something to be grasped. He lowers himself below the angels, becomes like you and me, puts on humanly flesh, says, okay, I'm gonna die in 33 years and I'm gonna live my whole life knowing that I'm going to be tortured and killed so that these people who despise and reject me can know me. Take that in. He was in the world. And though the world made through was made through him, that God created every aspect of everything we see, the world did not even recognize him. They made him be born in a manger outside. They didn't even recognize him. His own people. All of those people, God had a, knew who they were in Bethlehem. All of those people who rejected God in Jesus's life on earth, God knew them. He was pursuing them and they killed the very person that created them, the very person that came to sacrifice themselves from, the very person that came to put off their sin, to save them. Verse 11, he came to that which was his own. We, he owned all of us, but his own did not even receive him. And yet to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God.
This is what it means when the word became flesh. <clears throat> he was born into sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8. He never would have had to put up with sin. And now he had to come and resist sin for 33 years. And guess what? He did it to the T. He never sinned. And yet it says he was tempted in every single way that we were. So that he could do it first, so that we could do it by his strength. That he could show us it was possible that he could overcome the darkness so that light would be born out of it. We serve a God that brought God to us. He brought God down to us, to our level so that we could be adopted by him. And it's something very clear to understand. As a human, he had a beginning. People ask, you know, how could how could they kill God? How could they kill God on a cross? God, it's like a circle on a square. You can't you can't have both. God can't make a circle a square. You can't kill God because God is eternal. But listen, God is spirit. His flesh was just like ours, wasting away, getting older. His eyes getting worse. His back hurting his feet burning, his hands swollen from the carpenter work, the carpentry work that he was doing. All of these things were his own decision. If you could choose to be a human, would you do it? Would you choose to have all the struggles we have in our flesh? And yet Jesus chose. Chose all that. Just think of this, think of this. Before he worked with the wood as a carpenter, he created the wood. Before he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he created the Mount. Before he sailed on the Sea of Galilee, he created the sea. And then he was put to death on a cross, the wood that he had worked with for 30 years as a carpenter. You know, Jesus, after um, uh, he, as he grew up, he became a carpenter, if you didn't know. He took up his father's business until he became a rabbi and started preaching at age 30. Those wood, those nails, I'm sure he used them every single day. They were being plunged into his wrists on that cross. So that we could be born of God. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Basically, verse 18 is saying that Jesus has made known to God. You know, we were dead in our sins. Many, many of you listening might be as well separated from God. This was the state of humans. This is why Jesus had to come, if you don't know. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the law of the world says, if you sin, you must pay for that sin. And the penalty for that sin is death. We are all destined to die. And we are all destined to serve the punishment for our sin, which is eternal death, spiritual death. 
So Jesus comes not to wipe out the Romans. They're like, why aren't you wiping out the Romans? He's like, I have to fix you guys before I can do that because you are just as evil as the Romans. Yet, although the, the Romans might be over you guys right now, you are just as evil in your hearts. Jesus comes down. He makes atonement, like Daniel 9 says, atonement for sin. So that what? So that just like Adam and Eve, we could walk with God again. Jesus put on flesh for the rest of his life, suffered, so that we could talk to God. People that didn't even see talking to God as being something worthwhile. Some people that mocked God. People that hated God. People that didn't have even any room for Jesus. He's like, I died for you. I came to set you free from your sin so that I could have relationship with you. He wanted relationship with the people that hated him. It says, we were his own, but his own did not receive him. But he wanted a relationship with us. This is why Jesus was sent. And if you don't know him, Today's the day. He did all of this for you so that you could be free from your sin. No longer bound to the chains that hold you. That you could repent, which is to turn away from your sin. That you would be baptized because we have the ability, like it says in verse 13, to be born and children born not of natural descent, but born of God. And how do you do that? You get baptized into water and to receive the Holy Spirit, which is to mark you as a child of God. Jesus did all of this so that we could be reunited to the Father. The veil could torn. We don't have to go in a synagogue anymore to worship God. We don't have to go to the temple to talk to God. I can talk to God right here because that is what Jesus did. That is why he took on flesh. That is why he made his dwelling among us even though we rejected him. So that we could be free from our sin and so that we could know him. And let me tell you, friend, Jesus is coming soon. Zechariah 12, a prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays out the foundations of the earth and who forms the human spirit within a person declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding people's reelings, reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the hero, the horses of that nation. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot in a wood pile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first so that the honor of the house of David, right, the house of David, the king line, and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David and the house of David will be like God. Like the angel of the Lord going before them, on that day I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. So this is what they wanted in the Messiah and this is Jesus' plan still. Jesus came once to die for sin. He was the perfect lamb born in Bethlehem where the lambs were born. He took on your penalty for sin because in this world, if you commit a sin, it must be punished by death. 
But Jesus, the only perfect lamb, took on your sin, shed his blood on that mercy seat to atone for our sin, and he made a way back to the Father through his sacrifice. He's coming a second time, and this is what he's going to do. No one, no one will come against Jerusalem. He will make Jerusalem and Israel prosper. The house of David will prosper, and anyone that comes against him will will die, basically. And this is where it's heartbreaking. Verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plains of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives. The clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. The clan of the house of Levi and their wives. The clan of Shammai and their wives and all the rest of the clans and their wives. Wow, is this not powerful? He says one day, when, when Jesus comes back to make the house of Jerusalem strong and for, to, to, to actually destroy Jerusalem's enemies as they thought the Messiah would do when he came the first time. They didn't realize he was coming twice. But in verse 10, he says, I will give the, the house of Jerusalem grace and supplication. Remember, most Israelis are not Christian anymore. You look at the state of Israel, most of them are not Christian. I think it's less than 10% are Christian Christian Jews, I should say. Um, there's Christians that live there, but not Christian Jews. Um, the Jews are God's chosen people. He chose them first. But he says, on that day, I will pour out grace on them. And they will look on me, Jesus, the one that they pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for, one, for, for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. They will realize that this was their Messiah, that Jesus was the one that came, the one that they pierced, the one that they said was a blasphemer, the one that they killed. They will mourn for him because they will realize that his blood was on their hands. They will grieve bitterly. They will mourn for an only child because that was their only child. That was the thing that Israel had been waiting from the beginning of time. They missed it. Open your eyes to the Son of God. Isaiah 53 is a very powerful passage too if you want to check that out. It just talks about, you know, that Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of sorrows, you know, familiar with suffering. They did not recognize him as the Messiah. This is the miracle of Jesus, but also the heartbreak that Jesus came to a people of his own, like he says in John that didn't even recognize him. The Jews, he had told them, he had foretold to them for years that the Messiah would come and these are the things that he would do and yet they didn't even recognize him. But someday they will look on the one they have pierced and they will mourn realizing that that was their Messiah. That's why I read Daniel 9 because to the Jews out there, it's clear this is your Messiah. Your Messiah is Jesus. He is living today. He is out there. I want to leave you with Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, because this is when Jesus comes back a second time. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the last days. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established, 
as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Jesus is coming back. He's going to bring peace and he is going to rule on this earth. Read Revelation uh, 19 through 22, I think it is. He will rule on this earth. That is the miracle of Jesus. And he's coming back for all of us to reign and rule with us. Will you be on his team? <clears throat> now, again, I'm we're going kind of long and I think we're going to end here. So I think this is a really good spot. But just remember this. Christmas is not when Jesus was born. Christmas is a pagan, um, is a, I'm sorry, is a holiday with many pagan roots. Um, parental advisory here, because if you have kids around, you might want to pause it here, but Santa is not real. <clears throat> um, and many of the traditions we follow during Christmas, like Christmas trees and these things, they came from pagan rituals where the Catholics said, well, we can't get him to stop these pagan rituals, so we'll just turn him into Christian. I have a problem with that. And I'm definitely not going to tell my kids that Santa's real because that would be to lie to them. So, you know, I don't want to ruin this talk with harping on Christmas. And that's why I made this podcast today because I know many of you are celebrating Jesus' birth today and that's beautiful. And I hope that this touched you today. But on your own time, look into Christmas, look into the background, look into the history and uh, I think you'll find some things that are very upsetting and not pleasing. And this is why for me personally, we uh, don't really celebrate Christmas. And with all the twinkling lights, with the Christmas trees, with the presents, uh, nothing against you if you do, because I believe we are free. We're not under the law. But uh, for our consciences, uh, we want to worship and serve God. And this is not when Jesus was born. Christmas is not a Christian holiday. So I don't see the point of it. Um but again, if you do celebrate Christmas today, celebrate it with Jesus in mind. In fact, not just in mind. Get rid of all the other junk. This is about Jesus. Well, I love you guys, and I hope this one touched you. Um, this is a very special one to make for me. This is near and dear to my heart. And uh, there will be no podcast on Friday this week because this will be the third podcast in 10 days. You guys have a lot to get of catching up to do. But the prior Friday, we'll be back to Fridays. Um, have a great holiday with your family. Stay safe um, and uh, have a happy new year. And we will talk to you guys very soon. Um, and let me just pray for all you guys. Uh, dear Lord God, thank you for making your dwelling among us, God, for becoming flesh. God, taking on every single thing that we struggle with, God, every horrible human curse that we are under, God, you took that on so that we could be united to you, that we could know you, that we could worship you, God, that we could have relationship with you, that we could be free from our sin. Don't let us take this gift for granted. Who cares about the gifts around the tree? Who cares? What matters is the gift that you brought your son his message of repentance, 
God, help us to turn to you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Bless every person that listened tonight, Lord. In your mighty name I pray, amen. All right, you guys. I will see you soon. I love you all. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Jesus is Offensive podcast. If you liked what you heard, we're on Instagram. Check us out, Jesus is Offensive. Uh, or if you want to check out our website, jesusisoffensive.com. Uh, we have more podcasts on there. You can check that out at the podcast page. Uh, we also have cool apparel and another collection we're releasing on January 13th. Uh, and if you like what we're doing over here and you want to be a part of it, you want to make a donation, you can go to our about page uh, and you can donate there. And if you'd like to get in contact with us for prayer or questions, uh, feel free to reach out anytime. Uh, our email is hello at jesusisoffensive.com. I really appreciate you guys all tuning in and we will see you guys next week.